Welcome to Pedagogue, a podcast about teachers talking writing. I'm your host, Shane Wood. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe and follow the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. You can also find us online at pedagogpodcast.com. Again, that's pedagogpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at underscore pedagogue underscore and Instagram at pedagogpodcast. In this episode, I talk with Steven Alvarez about taco literacy, food studies and composition, autobiographical writing and ethnography, and culturally and community engaged practices. Steven Alvarez is Associate Professor of English at St. John's University in Queens. He is the author of Brokering Tereas, Mexican Immigrant Families Translanguaging, Homework Literacies, and Communities, Literacies, and Confianza, Learning from Bilingual Afterschool Programs. Both were published in 2017. Dr. Alvarez's current research studies Mexican migration in New York City through the prism of food, specifically taco literacy. This research project examines how foodways narratives demonstrate a literacy of care for Mexican communities across the five boroughs through stories of bilingual learning, literacy practices, and community resiliency. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us. I want to start by talking about taco literacy. What is taco literacy? And how do you introduce this concept to students? How do you see it interconnected with teaching writing? Sure, that's a great question. I guess maybe it's one of the questions I get the most. You're like, hold on, what is taco and literacy? I'm like, I know I like tacos. I guess I like literacy too. I mean, it depends who you ask. Um, I think most folks are generally fans of literacy in some ways, but I guess to, to begin with, uh, my research starts in literacy studies, but specifically about Mexican people. So I have a body of work that I produced before I started getting into the Mexican food stuff. And really, the literacy studies that I ground my work in is from the new literacy studies, thinking of literacy as a practice, uh, always contextual, always um, imbued with power relations, and always dynamic, socially understood as practices to make meaning, to sometimes negotiate meaning, and sometimes, of course, to contest meaning, and built on more of a kind of Frarian tradition of, of uh, critical pedagogy as well. Uh, Ira Shore was my advisor when I was in grad school, so he definitely left a lasting impression for how I thought, how I think about literacy, but also how uh, I think of um, literacy in communities and also forms of community empowerment and uh, problematizing uh, inequalities. Well, all this goes to say is my research initially was with Mexican immigrants in New York City, um, bilingual after-school programs, and also in Kentucky. And while I was doing this, research I was teaching was mostly ethnographic methods. And, but also, in addition to this, uh, you know, asking students to go in their communities, I was trying to teach classes to really think about humanizing Mexican people. This was during the Obama presidency. I had my first job, University of Kentucky, and then left right around the time that the next guy came in. And so the rhetoric was already amping up in terms of dehumanizing immigrants. And one of the classes I taught in Lexington was a class called Mexington. On the west side of town, there's a barrio. And guess who lives there? Mexington. And so... Um, that was a important place for me and also time of my research because so much of what I was trying to do was introduce students at a primarily white institution think about their neighbors and why the demographics of Kentucky are changing how they are changing mostly Mexican um, migration wave and so uh, one unit in the course and the course involved things like uh, bilingualism aspects of immigration uh, ways of thinking about uh, internal and external migration uh, economy and so on um, and 
the very end, I took the st students, we went out for a little uh, drive around uh, the barrio, went to a few places. One of the places I wanted to go was a local taqueria, one of my favorite places. And so I just got the students some tacos and they, well, it was like a religious awakening, I guess. The students, for me, uh, they were so excited. Uh, I mean, I should preface this by saying sometimes what the discussions about immigration were contested in class in ways that mirrored what was going on outside the class. And so uh, when they had this, these tacos, which I think uh, the students were sort of perplexed to see something beyond chicken and beef. They saw things like tripas. Uh, this particular place has sesos, brains, and like all the, all the really good cuts of awful or awful or whatever. Anyway, so um, uh, the students also uh, was the first time they had tried tortillas that were just made right there from uh, Kentucky corn, actually, some of the same corn used for grits. So this was a pretty cool um, moment because students were asking me about this food, how it got here, how they make this. And I'm like, everything I was trying to do is right here in this taco, talking about Mexican people, humanizing Mexican people to understand the stories, bilingualism, race, aspects of gender, class, and history, and why folks are here, because that corn has to come from somewhere. And the corn is, of course, the basis of a Mexican diet. So all this got just sort of my ideas in my head thinking, well, I can do a critical pedagogy style of class by problematizing what students can think of as Mexican food, but also reconfiguring it to always bring it back to people, because the class is always about people. The taco is a kind of a placeholder, but it's the first text that we read to critically examine it to think of it as a text, but also understanding that it's a linkage first and foremost to Mexican people, history, and power. And so that's really where the class comes from. But then when it comes down to it, it's also like starting out what students know about Mexican food. And even students who came from the holler in Kentucky, from Appalachia, there's always a Mexican restaurant. It may be the place where you get like you order by the number and you get like that crappy little iceberg salad with like sliced tomatoes that nobody ever eats covered in cheese, but there's always a place. And sometimes that's the inroads for students. And so to complicate this further, they start to see things that they recognize as regional foods in the US, there's regional foods in Mexico and how those regional foods in Mexico migrate to the United States to form new regional varieties. It's a very, um, it's interesting to say the least, but also it ties them into questions about food, which are ubiquitous and oftentimes things we don't really think about, but have humongous consequences for how we live and also how we see the world. So for those interested in taco literacy, I would encourage you to read Stephen's article in Composition Forum called Taco Literacies, Ethnography, Foodways, and Emotions Through Mexican Food Writing. He offers a food literacy assignment. Stephen, is, is food rhetoric and food literacies the future of composition studies? Has there been an increased attention to food literacies in our field and in writing classes since that 2016 article? That's a great question. I think um, as I came into this, I came in it through sort of a side door and um, sort of a funny story, but really I, I, I got a fellowship for the uh, Southern Foodways Alliance. And if you're not familiar with this, somebody from Kentucky, you definitely got to check this out because you would love it because so many stories are about Kentucky and all the really kind of, like I said, stories of food, but they're really about people. And food is sort of the secondary character that really gets people to think about the relationships we have with folks. So I was involved in this organization, not really knowing what to expect, to be quite honest. Uh, I went to this conference. By the way, the conference was amazing because they had like such great food. Um, but it was also bringing people together in food studies, um, I guess, writ large. I'm talking like farmers, journalists, food critics, uh, people who are in the food industry, uh, people who own restaurants, food scholars. And, and by scholars, I mean historians, anthropologists, public health, you know, people who are creative writers, poets, novelists. 
and uh, really just focusing on the different ways what people brought to food studies because it's so interdisciplinary and that field itself has been growing substantially and i think that's uh as comparet is a field that emerged from another field and we see fields that emerge from conglomerations of other fields with critical knowledge that's coming from different avenues that that's a that's what we did and i can see that happening with with food studies we composition rhetoric's been around quite a bit now you know we have journals and professional conferences and things. Food studies is sort of a, a emerging field, but also one where you can see intersections where composition rhetoric can have such a tremendous impact, especially on the way we think about teaching and our pedagogy and our pedagogy related to writing and studying writing and assessing writing and, and really designing projects that can really get students to, to do really important work to, and to dive into their own lives, to look at their lived experience and then to do those kind of research methods where students can go into their own communities using food as a lens to understand aspects of race, gender, class, and so on. And so I feel like uh, people in composition rhetoric were already cognizant of this and they were bringing in stuff, but it wasn't necessarily from food studies. It was mostly from maybe public health, uh, some folks who might be looking at um, some stuff that was coming out of communications, particularly in the rhetoric side. So there have been some folks doing really cool things like that in the community writing field. There's been folks who are doing stuff in community gardens and, and, and that kind of cool stuff. Um, but I could see, for example, in the future, having more collaborations where when people in composition rhetoric and literacy studies, especially go to food studies conferences and bring our critical lens to add to the discussion and open it up to a wider audience and reverse when food studies people would feel confident to come to our side and talk about what they've done as well. I'd say that um, one of the greatest things is when I became this fellow for the Southern Foodways Alliance was that it got me to actually turn the food and to really start seeing ways I could imagine doing this kind of work. And so that was really exciting for me, but also uh, having these opportunities to present my research that was really grounded in Mexican communities, bilingualism, literacy and power, speaking on those issues to audiences of farmers, to food critics and other folks who weren't necessarily thinking of literacy has been really important for me for a different kind of audience, a more general audience. Conversely, uh, bringing in some of the stuff that I was gaining from those conversations into literacy studies has opened me up even further. And that way, my research, sometimes we sort of get stuck within folks who, who are, you know, more or less, maybe not in the same areas that we're studying, but in ways that align. And then this has been really important for me to start thinking about how I articulate my research to people outside my field, but then also bring in what's going on from some of these other folks and invite them in, too. So... I'd say the biggest thing, though, that I noticed that from composition rhetoric that we bring is, is our ways of thinking about teaching and our pedagogy. And this is something where to really help some of the folks like for online teaching and really thinking of ways to do really cool writing assignments that involve food. This is where we can really do some inroads. One of your priorities as a teacher is to foster agency and encourage students to really reflect and draw on their communities, their languages, literacies and food. And you do some of this by centering autobiographical writing and ethnography in your classes. Can you talk more about how you do this work? Absolutely. I mean, I should say that uh, my research, when I was writing my dissertation, I went from starting off with um, studying literature. I want to study like avant-garde, literature, like James Joyce and Sam Beckett and, and uh, Ezra Pound. And then at some point, I turned it to an ethnographer, which was very different. Um, doing qualitative research wasn't stuff I had ever really done besides like textual analysis or like close reading really. And so it was cool. Uh, I had to learn a lot about methodology, which was sort of retraining myself. But then of course you can do close reading 
Um, that's a really great skill to have to be able to also think about how you read situations, but also accumulating text for, you know, for analysis and things. So that was really important for me. And when I wanted to position myself as a writing teacher, was always thinking about alternatives to data that students could to research, study, and then come to diff make different conclusions. And so having students do things that are, you know, sometimes beginning with doing interviews with people they know, people in the community was really important, especially if it was members of their family or elders or, or role models or people they may look up to as mentors. And sometimes they hear those stories. And more importantly, was sharing those stories and students getting together to share the stories that they collected and do some group analysis. Also going through family photo albums, uh, doing photo essays, going to communities, do observations. I mean, the kind of writing that they were doing is field notes and then using the field notes as the text then for analysis to draw larger conclusions, in addition to doing research in ethnographic journals or journals that use ethnography. And so I guess the, the larger picture was that that method, developing methodologies of composition using ethnography in classrooms with students understanding their own lived experience and how they define community doesn't necessarily need to be family. Some students who might identify as queer might find another kind of affiliation that they feel that might, um, I don't know, subliminate instead what they had rather for a family, but find something closer, alternative families, for example. So this was uh, really important for students to think about how they make meaning and make meaning socially. And I think that was really the big part. Fast forward, this, this semester right now, I'm teaching the first graduate version of a food waste literacy class at St. John's. And so my idea for this is I've been also diving more into autoethnography. So autobiographical genre, but using the methods, same methods by one which would accumulate data, let's say of a community, but also turning it inward and understanding oneself, one's positionality, aspects of race, class, gender, history, family history on that level. And so autoethnography has been a really cool genre or excuse me, a, a methodology because it can also involve creative elements. Um, people who are novelists do autoethnographic research. The classes began with autoethnographic methods and having students really start thinking about how they identify with various aspects of their identity related to food as expressed, not necessarily through Mexican food, but whatever their background is. And one student, pretty cool, his, um, his father drinks, it's called Solient. I think it's that like powder drink. He's like, you don't have to eat. It's just like this powder drink. So he's been studying that a little bit and getting to know a little bit about his family. His family also, uh, his mother, um, I believe, owned a small restaurant with a farmer's market. And so he's actually diving back into some of those, I think, memories he kind of repressed, <laughs> to be quite honest. But really started asking a lot of questions. And we extended it so that uh, it started off with the methodology of autoethnography and then start thinking about ways to collect data. And that's been emerging over the course of the semester. And some of the different texts we've read, um, they've come in in food studies from aspects of agribusiness to history, anthropology, sociology, uh, public health, trying to bring in as many different lenses, composition and rhetoric, of course, as well. And so um, the idea was that giving students some of the methods that they would use those methods to probe aspects of themselves and their identity and their social formation while reading these examples over the course of the semester to develop a project that over the course of the semester would be developing. So they're really kind of right now thinking about data, what they want to study, but it's really um, a way for them to consider their lived experience, their relationships to food, but also their relationships to people as expressed through food and understand what are the deeper linguistic and literacy aspects that are, are formative in this as well. So it's been really cool. You know what I mean? If we, if we really think about our own lived experiences and how we read the world and read our lives, that is a Frarian principle, but also reading how social inequalities are inherently part of our lives and sometimes need to be uncovered and problematized. I think a lot of the stuff students were really looking at were some of the things about monocultures and agribusiness and 
uh, pesticides in Monsanto and things they knew and they heard were bad. But when they started getting into it, I mean, it is really, it is really a, another form of colonization with colon <laughs> emphasized there, but for, for certainly another way of thinking about um, geopolitics through food. So you're asking students to do this deep, reflective, investigative, critical thinking, culturally engaged work. You ask students to explore their own lived experiences. And I know that you mentor teachers. How would you go about mentoring a teacher who is interested in connecting with communities and doing this kind of community-engaged, culturally-centered work? What practices or resources would you recommend? Well, I mean, it's a great question. I get, I do get this question a lot. And usually, especially when I'm talking to teachers or anybody, really, you just ask folks, like, tell me about the food that is really close to your heart. And everybody's got this, right? For whatever reason, it might be like a particular food that was made by a family member or it has some kind of ethnic affiliation. It might be something that has to do with the person's diet, or it might even have to do with something like a guilty pleasure, you know, and so on. But there's so many ways the emotional connections that we have for who, for food are there for everybody. And then you can ask folks about what are, for example, what are some of these special foods from where you're from? And then all of a sudden you start to get really interesting questions. So for example, um, you know, not too far from Cincinnati, they got this, I don't want to say it's weird, but it's a little bit weird to me, chili with spaghetti on the chili or chili on the spaghetti, you know, but hey, you know, to each their own, right? Because everybody needs at least a little bit of spice, although that's mostly ketchup, I don't know how to be saying. But anyway, so when I moved to Kentucky, I was like, well, that's kind of weird, but all right, I need to know more about this. And there's so much out there on this about trying to find the origins about where this stuff comes from, how this kind of hybrid food even occurs, where you can get the best one, what's the authentic so-called, which is a fruitless escapade to ever find the authentic of anything. And so really those questions are there for everybody. And that's the first place you start to get. So for example, um, somebody from West Virginia and anyone from West Virginia will recognize these pepperoni rolls, which is basically a piece of bread with pepperoni, either a stick or roll the pieces of pepperoni. Uh, to speak about that and where that comes from, it has to go back to like folks in the coal mines and Italian immigrants and basically having a hearty food that was just on the go. Um, so much of street food is this about like it's class based, but then they also become things that are monikers for like identifications on a larger scale. In the United States, there's so much about um, enslavement, the agriculture economy there as well. And then, of course, uh, people maintaining their dignity through their food ways, uh, the stories of of people keeping ochre seeds in their hair that were brought from Africa. And so there's just so much, and there's so much text out there. Um, I think probably the best way for students to get into this, some of this stuff to, and really to see examples and then maybe start thinking about their own communities, the Southern Foodways Alliance. I really, I always begin with their short documentaries. They have these documentaries that are about between seven to eight to maybe 10 minutes long, done really well always focusing on people telling their stories, but then shot really well so you can also savor the flavors and the sounds and the smells. And then of course the countryside, it's always sort of land-based. There's also so many things on YouTube. I can't even, oh, you know, sometimes in a class, things get a little slow, you just always go to YouTube, right? Have a couple of YouTube videos ready to go. And even then, I mean, um, there's so many food shows um, that are out there. And I don't mean just Bourdain, but I mean like everything. If you want to even study like Top Chef and the sort of like the reality TV versions of food shows. But I have to be honest, um, when I was teaching at St. John's, uh, one of the last seasons of Bourdain's show, he did a show on Queens and the students had not seen it. And we, and we watched that in class and I'd never seen them so engaged. And this is at St. John's, a really diverse school. I remember one of the students was saying, wow, this, 
this really shows how diverse we are. He's like, this school, they try to use that to sell the school, but this is really what it is. And I was like, yeah, this is your neighborhood. This is your borough. This is us. And this is a really important way for people who maybe, as I grew up, grew up in Arizona. Arizona is a dry heat, but it's a dry hate, drier even. And growing up Mexican-American, first-generation college student, and um, you're taught to hate yourself, really. And you just like, you're taught to like say that, you know, the reason why your family is the way it is because people didn't work hard enough or we're not smart enough or whatever, or you didn't want to learn English. It's always based on what you don't do or what you lack, uh, a deficit model. And then I realized as I got, went to college that I could be proud of who I am, which had, I had to go to higher education to get all the other stuff out of me. And so one of the things I realized that I was really proud of was the food of my people. I mean, that I was like, this is something that kept me going. And my mom and dad, maybe they didn't have a college education, but they always kept me fed with whatever we had. And there was always beans. We always had beans and tortillas. And so I guess the, the when we talk about food in those ways that about like emotional resonances, that can be very personal and to put that in writing and to share those with other people. That's, that's the same as breaking bread or tortillas. And in that way, the next stage is then you just have students start bringing food to class. But th those are always fun moments. And I think um, I'd say that once I started realizing how, how much of a unifier food can be and, and bringing smiles to people's faces and getting them to think critically, I was like, there's no turning back. So that's, that's kind of where it fell. Thanks, Stephen. And thank you, pedagogue listeners and followers. Until next time.